If you will grab your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Acts, surprise, the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 18 for a while. So God, having revealed Jesus Christ to this world, having come into this world, giving the ultimate revelation of himself, now, as we've talked about the last couple of Sundays, the Bible says God in times past may have winked at certain of sins or may have been merciful and, and very, very gracious with us in our ignorance. The Bible says in these last days, he is commanding us to repent and to believe the good news. And the reason why he's doing that is because God in his infinite grace and mercy has sent Jesus, his son. And having sent Jesus into this world, having provided forgiveness for us all, that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, God says, there's your answer. That's your shepherd. That's your Lord. And he says, that's the way. Repent and come to Christ. Amen. All right. So going into 18, we've got Paul going into uh, Corinth. And if you've noticed, as we're looking through the book of Acts, we keep hearing these names like Ephesus, Thessalonica. We hear about Galatia. We hear about all these names and we're saying, well, wait a minute. You know, we've got books in our Bible that are to these. Yes, you're absolutely right. And Paul has started churches in these places and he has actually built and, and helped within the, the believers community. These churches are being built up on their most holy faith. And what you're seeing is that after this, there are going to be letters that are written to these churches. And there's a lot of good things that are going on in the churches, but you've got to think also as fledgling churches beginning to truly grow in their relationship with Christ that eventually is going to take over the entire earth. I mean, think about it, people. You know, America was not, or as they say, they America. But anyway, America was right... In, you know, wasn't right next to Palestine. We see the gospel literally traveling over the entire earth. And because of what was begun in this small band uh, of human beings, flawed human beings, just like you and me, God looked down in them, forgave them, loved them, poured his Holy Spirit, and that is the thing throughout Acts. The works, we say the acts of the apostles, the acts of the Holy Spirit through his church is what it is. But you think about this, God moving through these people, they would be used by God to share the truth of Jesus from person to person to person. And as they did, Jesus Christ spreads throughout the known world, throughout the extended world, and people today, we sit in this congregation because of Jesus Christ, because the gospel has not failed, and it can't fail. The Bible says, it's speaking even from the Old Testament, God says his word will not return to him void, but it will accomplish and it will prosper in the thing for which God has sent it. So we are here today because God's word is truth. And as Jesus speaking to Peter, and he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell. And actually that term is Hades there. It's not just talking about darkness, Satan, and things like that. It's talking about death itself. What people would look at is, is the final enemy, the end of it all. Jesus is saying not even death itself will be able to stop the church. Nothing, not hell, not Satan, not anything will be able to stop his church. So upon that rock I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so today, and even though we talk about the dark times that might be touching the earth today, just as in past generations there has been great darkness, the enemy is always trying to steal, kill, and destroy. But there's one thing he can't destroy, and that is Christ's body. It will always be here, and whenever he returns, there will be a body that he will take his bride to be with him. Amen? So we're seeing the continuation of of that here. So Paul's going into Corinth and we talked about the sins that are known with Corinth, a lot of lusts of the flesh and, and people living in perversion. But anyway, Paul is ministering and the Lord tells him not to be afraid. He has many people in this city. So let's start in um, verse 18. So Paul's going to return to Antioch and I'm trying to move through fairly quickly. 
But anyway, so Paul is given liberty to continue preaching the gospel. He's not being arrested, at least at this moment. So he continues to minister. So it says in verse 18, it says, so Paul still remained a good while in the area where he was. Then he took leave of the brethren and he sailed to Syria. And it says Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers, if you remember, and ministered with him. They were with him and he had his hair cut off. And it talks about incentria. Okay. Now, what is interesting, it says he had made a vow. Now, what kind of vow is this? Most people believe, in, and, and I believe this too, Paul had made a Nazarite vow. Now, it, it talks about he had his hair cut off, and what would happen is whenever your Nazarite vow was completed, you would have your hair removed because one of the requirements, as a matter of fact, let's test you out. Let's see, let's see our Bible scholars in here. You say, Pastor, you don't do this too often. Yeah, I'm going to do it today. What was required of a Nazarite vow? What are some of the things you could not do? Woo! Boy, y'all got that one right off the bat, did you? Cut your hair. What was something else you were supposed to stay away from? Well, what was it? No, you, you had it. Grape food, that's right. Grapes, vines, that's right, absolutely. W weren't allowed to mess with wine. As a matter of fact, you couldn't even touch grapes or, or, or even um, raisins. You were supposed to stay away from the flesh of, of those, intoxicating drink and whatnot. You couldn't do it. And there was one more thing you weren't supposed to touch. As a matter of fact, Samson touched it. Stay away from wild women. You want to know something? I'm not sure if that's exclusive to a Nazarite vow, but I think your covenant with your wife kind of covers that one. So any vow that you make, you should stay away from my father. But moving on, okay, that, that's a requirement. You weren't supposed to touch dead things. And if you think about uh, Samson, that's one of the things that he did. Pretty much all of Samson's vows were broken very much early on, being a Nazarite from birth. And it was his hair being cut was just the, the straw that broke the camel's back. But think about this. Paul had taken this Nazarite vow. And the Nazarite vow was a vow of consecration, to be set apart to God. And people might say, well, is this, you know, an Old Testament law thing or whatnot? No, what it is, is this was a free will thing. It's not something that you were demanded to do. It's something that you could do. It was a vow to say to God that I want to be set apart for your work. So for whatever reason, Paul had decided to have a Nazarite vow. And in order to complete that Nazarite vow, he had to go to Judah. He had to go back there to the area around Jerusalem, and he was going to see the church there to complete his vow. Okay, that he had made. The Bible does not necessarily tell us what that vow was, but it does say that he had taken a vow and now he's going to shave his head, he's going to have his hair cut off, and then he will begin his, I guess you'd say, continue his journey. All right, so let's see. For he had taken a vow. So 19 it says, And he came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and he reasoned with the Jews. Now you will notice that this is a recurring thing in Scripture. Everywhere Paul goes, he is absolutely burning for his brethren. If you hear Paul speaking, he said his, his, his heart's desire, his burning desire, his zealous desire to see his brethren come to know Jesus Christ. People, that is the completion. That is the goal at which the Torah aimed, is it, to use a, a Jewish phrase there. But that is it. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment. Everything that God expected of humanity is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? So we've got Paul, and what he wants to do is he wants his brethren to come to know Jesus. And Paul even says this at one point, and I don't think that I'm there that yet, folks, okay? But just, just hear me out. Paul said, I wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. That is, that they might come to find Jesus. Paul says, I would be willing to just let it all go because I love my brethren so much and I want them to be able to come to Christ. Well, I got news for you. I love you, but I, I don't want to go to hell. So that being the case, uh, following in, in the principle of what Paul is saying, he wants to see people desperately, desperately come to Christ. So the first thing he does is he goes into the synagogue, and many times there are people that do come to Christ, but there's also an opposition that we see time and time again that comes against him. So he goes into their synagogues, and he is reasoning with them from the Scriptures. So verse 20, when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, this time he says, you know, I, I can't do it. I've got to go. Well, why isn't he going to stay with them? So 
the reason being is he's trying to get to Jerusalem, okay? But he took leave of them saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem. He wants to be there for the festival and he wants to complete his Nazarite vow. So he says, I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed again to Ephesus. And when he had gone and had landed in Caesarea and had gone up and greeted the church, notice the first thing he does is he greets his brothers and sisters, the local believers in the area, uh, he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and he went to the regions of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Okay, now we're going to learn about a fellow named Apollos, which is going to bring us into a little bit of what I asked you. If you wanted to, you could study up on, because in the upcoming chapter, we're going to be reading the words, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And that almost seems counter to the scripture, because if you have believed, you have the Holy Spirit. But we'll look at that in just a moment. But let's talk about this fellow named Apollos. Some people have even thought that maybe just maybe, you know, the book of Hebrews and maybe another book or two might have the authorship of Apollos. We don't know that, but let's, let's hear a little bit about him. So this is a man who, uh, what he knows about Christ, what he knows to be the truth, he is doing everything in his power to preach, and he's a very, very eloquent man. So it says, now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures, came to Ephesus. Now, at first thought, you might say, well, the, the Bible's presenting a person that has a complete knowledge in the faith. This is one of those people that is going throughout the world and is proclaiming the unadulterated uh, truth of Christ. But the fact is, as we're going to find out, is that pa Apollos doesn't have, you know, uh, the, I want to be careful using the term perfect understanding of Scripture, but he doesn't understand everything that he should at this point. But what he has been given, what people have taught him, he is using that to the uh, ultimate degree. I mean, this man is taking what little he has learned about Christ and what has been shared with him, and this fellow is, is being faithful with it. So this is an example, if you will, of someone who might not know everything, but somebody for what he has been given is doing everything he can to be faithful with what he is given. So we see that in Apollos. Okay, so mighty in the scripture, and he comes to Ephesus, says this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Okay, just keep that in the back of your mind. So he has some instruction. And being fervent, burning hot in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So what he does know, under, uh, know and understand, he's teaching accurately, but there is a limitation to what he says. Now, what is the baptism of John? The Bible says is that we were to believe in the one that was to come. That is, we're supposed to be believing on the Messiah who Jesus, or let me rephrase, John said was in the world. But he may have had some instruction, but let's go on and see what had been given to him. Verse 26, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In other words, they completed his understanding. Not simply believing in the one that should come to repent of our sins, to bring our hearts in alignment with God, to say, Father, I want to be pleasing to you, and I will be obedient to what you say. You say, I will believe on the one that is coming, the Messiah that he's talking about, being faithful in that, now they're going to tell him everything that you have believed and the one that you've been told was coming, that person is Jesus Christ. And they explain to him what Christ Jesus has done. They explain to him how he died on the cross for our sins. They explain to him that there is salvation in no other, and it is Jesus plus or minus nothing that brings salvation. So he is coming to that full knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's what Priscilla and Aquila are trying to teach him. So let's see here. They explained to him more accurately the, the, the truth of God. Verse 27, And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples, Receive this man, receive Apollos. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. Notice this is another emphasis here. The idea is, let's see. The Bible says that we receive the gift of God by grace through faith. 
not of human works, lest anyone should boast. But that term grace is very, very powerful. What God is offering to us, we as human beings, we cannot earn it. We cannot be, quote unquote, good enough for it that we deserve God, okay? That does not mean that we as human beings ought not be good. You know, now we say, well, we can't be good. But hear me out. I'm talking about in Christ Jesus, okay? People, we can do things that please the Lord's heart. But in order to be pleasing to God in any way, we must first accept the mercy that he has offered in Jesus. And having received Christ, yes, we are created for good works, the Bible says, in Jesus Christ. Okay? So we're endeavoring to serve him, but all of this, that we can't deserve it, that we don't deserve it, but God in his mercy chose to give this gift, this gift of grace, forgiveness. He chose to do it. Why? Because he loves us. Not because we earned it, but because he loves us. He sent Jesus to die for us. All right. So let's keep going. For he vigorously, talking about Apollos, it says, refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures now that Jesus is the Christ. So his ministry has taken on a more direct and pointed, sharp message in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay. So we've got Apollos ministering, and they're bringing him in so that we can have an accurate understanding of the history of the church. But now notice where Paul ends up and what happens in Ephesus. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having pressed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. That is an interesting word, disciples. When you think of disciples, you think of people who are following, loving, serving Jesus, know Jesus, right? They have an understanding. But also, I need you to understand that the world, the known world, is coming to understand. Whereas today, we have had the benefit of years of study. We have had the benefit of those great Bible uh, teachers. But let me say this, great saints in the early church, early church fathers. We have people who have worked through a lot of this stuff. Because as the gospel spread, and people, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but I want you to understand something. You do understand in the early church, we had some major splits. We had some schisms, as they would call them, or schisms, that came into the church. That is, not all believers were on the same page. Do you want to know why? It's not because believers are just sometimes bullheaded, although that does happen. But it's because the enemy will always... He's always going to strike against those people that love and to serve God. The major thing that, wants, that God wants, oh, let me rephrase, God's trying to protect and the enemy's trying to destroy is unity. When believers are in one accord, the Bible talks about the foundations in the early parts of Acts. It says the very foundations of the church are shaken. They had earthquakes when they prayed. Why? It was a demonstrative, in-your-face, tangible thing that God could show the church, I am with you. And when the church is living and walking in unity, listen, we can have disagreements, folks. We're going to have difference of opinion. It's going to happen. As a matter of fact, we're not supposed to always see eye to eye. That's one of the ways that we protect one another. But the differences of opinion from time to time. But that does not mean because we see some things differently that we ought to split off and create 20 other denominations. Because a lot of times, you know, oh, come on, folks. It's, it's, it's almost like, well, I don't like what you're doing. We'll just go start us another church. Well, I got news for you. There's not but one church. It's Tennessee Avenue. No. Um, yeah, I'm going to pay for that one later. God will say, boy, you ought not be doing that. But anyway... There's one church. It's the body of Christ. And I understand that we have difference of opinion, doctrinal differences that have happened that have created some denomination. But sometimes, folks, these things were created just because folks couldn't get along. And, and I don't know about you, but when my brother could, and I couldn't get along, we didn't just leave our house and go someplace else. We had something called parents. And my parent, my father, who is here with you, and I'm not trying to just make a joke. I'm trying to be drive home a point. And it was this. If I looked at my brother and said I hated my brother and I wanted to beat him to death, my father would show me what beating was. 
And whenever I experience that beating, hmm, don't want to experience that beating anymore. And of course, we'd look at each other, we would forgive each other, and we would move on. Me and my brother could disagree to disagree, but that didn't mean we split our family. There's a lot of wisdom in there if you think about it. So anyway, but we must, we must be in unity. And what the enemy tries to do is to do anything to keep us at each other. And we can't do that. So, anyway, moving on, I was in 19.1. So, he found some disciples there. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, which is a strange remark, he says, we have not if as much heard as whether there be any Holy Spirit. Now, did anybody get a chance to study that and wants to offer any commentary on that? I'm just curious. If you studied it, and we can just continue to teach, but is there anybody that would like to share anything on that? I'll bring you a microphone if you want it. Feel free to comment at any point, but let me say this. Let's just look at it from the outside. Why would... Paul even make this comment. Why would he even say this? This is not something else that is recorded in Scripture. We don't need to, uh, let me say this, we don't see in Scripture Paul walking up to people that are referred to as believers, and he looks at them and he goes, whoa, 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 do you fellows have the Spirit of God? We don't see that. So what does that indicate? It indicates in while Paul was speaking to them, he noticed something was deficient. He noticed that these people, for whatever reason, were not experiencing the fullness of what Jesus Christ had for them, for whatever reason. Now, you've got to think about this. Let's go back for just a moment, and let's take a look at Cornelius. We studied about him the first time that the gospel is taken directly to Gentiles for the purposes of the Gentiles receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, if you remember, whenever Peter was going to go, God had to prep him. God had to give him those visions of unclean animals. And he says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, uh-uh. He said, I don't need unclean things, Lord. I'm kosher. And God looks at him and he says, I don't care whether you're kosher or not, Philip's translation. But he says this, what God cleanses, that is what God cho- chooses, don't call it unclean, okay, or common. God can choose for himself that which he desires. It's all his. So anyway... He tells him to go, or Peter, he tells him to go with the servants of Cornelius. And anyway, he's coming to the house. Now remember, Cornelius was a God-fearer. He was a Greek that uh, was a sympathizer, and I hate to use that word sympathizer. It's what a lot of scholars use. But in essence, he was a believer in the Torah. He was a believer in the Hebrew Scriptures. He was a believer in the Lord God, although not being a Jew. And he fellowshiped and he took care of God's people. But in essence, he was a God-fearer. He loved the Lord. Although not being a direct covenant uh, uh, descendant, I guess you would say, of Abraham, he still loved God. And God, seeing this believer, wanted him to come to a full knowledge. That's not that he didn't have knowledge, but a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. So the angel says, you need to go there, you need to send for this person, bring him back, and he'll tell him what you need to do, or he'll tell you what you need to do. So you remember Peter comes in, and he tells him about the vision that he had, you know, and uh, so Peter says, you know, I perceive that God's not a respecter of person. That is, as God does not show favoritism. But in any place where there are people that love him and fear him, they are accepted by him. People, that is a powerful statement. So what ends up happening is Peter starts preaching, and in the middle of preaching, the second he gets to the person that he need to have faith in, that is Jesus Christ. Their hearts turn to Christ, and the Bible says that the same signs, the same miracles that took place on the day of Pentecost occur on Gentile believers. They begin praying in tongues. They begin prophesying. They be doing all of these, I guess you would say, demonstrative outward signs for the inward reality of what was happening. And so Peter's like, you know, he looks at the Jews and he says, are you going to deny water that these people should be baptized? They were like, "Mm -mm, we're not denying them anything. And then we ended up in Jerusalem, if you remember, because it was a big debate. Well, of course, Gentiles, you know, if they're going to be saved, they have to obey the law of Moses like any other Jew. And Paul's like, "Mm mm-mm. 
He says, it's Jesus plus or minus nothing. He said, faith in Christ alone saves them. They don't need to be circumcised. They don't have to obey the law of Moses. In Christ Jesus, the law has been fulfilled. Okay? Now, people will immediately say, well, I'm free from the law, so now I can go out there and live like I want to live. Hogwash! The Bible says that the law that God gave was good, and it was showed us his moral nature. What makes us think that we're released from being moral and loving God and doing those things that he tells us we should do? The law now takes on a fulfilled meaning. And now we walk in obedience to the Spirit in our heart. But in no way does that change to say that we can live like we want to live. The Bible says we may be free uh, in, in one sense, but in another sense we're bound in the law of Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of love. So, moving on here. Okay, so he says this, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Okay. So Paul sees that there's some sort of deficiency. There's something that happened. And they said, well, we haven't even heard is whether there be any Holy Spirit. Now, Paul's there for a minute. I'm not saying anything contrary to the scriptures. I'm trying to bring up a thought. If you had a Jew, listen to me for a moment. If you had a Jew that had ever heard anything about the Hebrew Scriptures, especially by the time they had their bar mitzvah. But I want you to think about this. To say that a Jew did not know that there was a Holy Spirit, that's problematic. So what is being said here, or whether it be whatever the group that is here, but the, the, the point is, is there has probably been some exposure to the Scripture. There needs to be. But what they are saying is that, Paul, what you're sharing with us, that God's Spirit comes to live in us, we, don't, we haven't been taught that. We don't understand exactly what you're talking about, okay? So we haven't even heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. So Paul has a question in verse 3. He says, okay, into what then were you baptized? In other words, are you baptized believers? And they said, yes. And he said, okay, when you were baptized... You know, coming to full knowledge of, of, of Christ Jesus, there is a believer's baptism. That's why today we practice believer's baptism because it was something subsequent to our faith. Okay? So he's asking them, well, if you were baptized, what kind of baptism did you receive? And notice again, into John's baptism, we're going back to Apollos here. The baptism they had received was a baptism of John that was to believe in the one who should come. But they have not been given that full understanding of what Christ Jesus had done upon the cross. So, that's not to say that they weren't following God. It's not to say that they weren't taking steps in obedience. And it's not to say that they weren't accepted by God up to where they were. Because the fact is, is what is Jesus doing? Jesus is making sure these believers are going to hear the gospel. So it says to them, into what were you baptized? And they said, into the baptism of John, verse 4. And then Paul said this. He said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. So repent, turn to God, and believe in the one that is to come. All right. And it says, and when they heard this, so Christ Jesus is now being presented to them. He is preaching the gospel to them in the finished work of Christ, what he did upon the cross. And it says, and when they heard this, they were baptized again, which explains once again that their faith was not complete. Because why baptize them again if they already understood? And where are they being baptized? They're not, ba not the baptism of John, but a baptism in the name of Christ Jesus. Okay? Now, some people right here will draw a line and they will say, aha! You see that? We need to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and Jesus only. And, and I, my heart just sinks. Because this is a classical example of pulling one, I call it cherry-picking scripture, where you pull one thing out and you make everything else in the scripture subservient to that one idea. And that's not what it's saying there. Because from the lips of Jesus Christ he sa himself, he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. That is from the lips of Jesus. That is his command in the triune God. So what is he saying here? 
He's saying they are baptized in the name now that they believe in. They believe in the name of Jesus. Okay? So they're baptized, and per the command of Jesus, I have no reason to doubt that they are absolutely baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So moving on from here, they're baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and then Paul lays his hands on them. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spake with tongues, and they prophesied. And it says, now the men were about 12 in all. Now, here is where a lot of doctrinal beliefs begin to be established. And people, I want to be careful with this. I am not, as I've said before, the final authority on anything. I'm not. The Bible is supreme even over your pastor. And when your pastor, not deliberately, I can assure you, he will never try to deliberately say something in in contradiction to Scripture. But if he should, in his ignorance and frailty as a human man, you believe the Word of God above me. Period. Okay? I'm not apostle. I am not one of those people that God in the early church planted here so that we might establish orthodoxy. I will do my best to teach you the unadulterated word of God to the best of my ability, but I am a human being and I am frail and I can fail. I will never do it deliberately, but if I do, have mercy upon me, pray for me, speak to me, help me. But you listen to Christ above me and any pastor okay but here's the deal sometimes doctrines have been created even within the pentecostal denominations now i'm going to tell you something that you may have forgotten you may remember my education is twofold i have been a heartfelt baptist for most of my life i did a short stint in the assemblies of god church yes i am a rattlesnake holder no i'm not but I have held an earthworm from time to time, and they're pretty good bait. But that being said, night crawlers. Now, that's when you're really spiritual when you handle night crawlers. Okay. So, Emmanuel, where I did my, my undergraduate studies, is actually in a Pentecostal holiness school. I have the benefit of sitting under some scholars and teachers that have been under a Pentecostal persuasion. I have had further education a whole lot more under good, solid Baptist scholars. But wherever it may be, I have been under people that love the Lord. And I have had people that I was very fortunate to have teach me that were not dogmatic to the point that they looked at you and said, this is the way, it's the only way. And they weren't talking about Jesus Christ, they were talking about their way. What I'm teaching you is the absolute perfect, unadulterated gospel and you need to listen to me. That's not what they did. True scholarship are people that look at you and say, this is my conviction, this is my belief based on A, B, C, and D, but I will give you several different opinions and hope that you will pray and that you will adopt that which Christ tells you in your heart to be true. And having been trained, even in a Pentecostal denomination, even in those denominations that felt very strongly in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, they are very, and I'm talking about even those that I study on, are very careful about this scripture to make a doctrine out of it. To say that this shows that uh, the baptism, quote unquote, the baptism of the Holy Spirit with the initial evidence, as they say, of speaking in other tongues is a requirement, that is a, a doctrine, uh, some people have used this scripture to say that, but even the scholars that I went under said, not sure that we need to go that far. Because they recognize something. What is being established in the early church is people are being shown that the Spirit of God is coming upon these people, but the, each of these individuals, whether Jews or whether Gentiles, whether they have always walked or whether they first understand, God is giving a demonstrative evidence that he has indeed called these people and that his blessing is upon them. So does that mean that it must happen perpetually? I've got news for you. There were other people that were ministered to that are not even in this uh, Bible because even as it talked about Jesus, it said if everything was recorded that Jesus Christ did, all the volumes in the world wouldn't be able to do it. But these are written that you might believe. Believe in Jesus Christ and that you might have life through his name. So what do I think? Personally, my conviction from Scripture is happening here. It's just that. They came to know Jesus Christ. And whenever that knowledge was fully formed in them, having repented of their sins, Paul laid his hands on them as a sign of their acceptance, and God showed that acceptance through the power and the signs of the Holy Spirit.
that's what I believe. That's not developing a doctrine. That's not saying that every person must do this. Although if God chooses to move in your life in that way, praise the Lord. But what I am saying is that God is showing that his hand is upon his church. All right. So, coming to a full understanding of Jesus Christ... In verse 6, Paul laid his hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, spake with tongues and prophesied, and there were about 12 men. Verse 8. And whenever he went into the synagogue, he spoke boldly for three months. That's a long sermon. Y'all get angry at me for an hour and a half. Next week's sermon, three months. Three months. I'm telling you right now. It's going to be three. No, okay. Anyway, boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Understand Paul, and, and I think that this is, is one of those mistakes that we fall into, is we think as apostles, they just walked in and said, believe in Jesus, stood up like this, and pow, miracles took place, and everybody was converted, okay? There were times that there were great demonstrative miracles. There were these times of mass conversion, but what you're seeing more and more and more is that Paul is going into the synagogue and it says he's reasoning with them. He's debating with them. He's going back and forth with them with them to show this, that what they knew in the scriptures, what they knew to be true, their conviction of what was true is indeed fulfilled in the person of Christ. And people by the masses are coming to know Jesus. Okay, let's see. Verse 9, it says, but when some were hardened, as inevitably it, it seems to be wherever he goes, there are those that reject. And they did not believe, but spoke evil of, notice that there. Let me see if it's up there. Yeah, on your screen. I have to look behind you. It's behind me. But if you take a, a look there, did you notice the word way is capitalized? But spoke evil of the way. People who were Christians were called people of the way. Sometimes you will see in scriptures, it says the name or Hashem. But the name, they went out because of the name, Hashem. These were people that ministered in the name of God. And what you're seeing is that once again, they were referred to as people of the way. All right, so let me go back and make sure I'm doing this properly. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew uh, the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Which I look back and looked at Trans and it talks about a, a school that was there. It wasn't anything, you know, that really they drew out, but just a school. And it says this continued for two years. Now that's quite a time, isn't it? So that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And it says, Now God worked unusual miracles. Now, anytime you see the word miracle and you see the word unusual, you probably ought to take a look at that. Because I don't know about you, but spitting on the ground and making clay out of the spittle and rubbing it in people's eyes is a little unusual to me, right? Oh, I'm sorry. Y'all see that every day. I I didn't know. Okay, obviously you walk in a different way than what I walk. Okay, y'all see this stuff all the time. I was kind of blown away by, you know, people walking on water and all that kind of stuff. That was real cool to me. Everybody's like, yeah, we see that all the time. My cousin did it yesterday. But anyway, so it says unusual miracles. Well, let's take a look at this. And, you know, we try to sometimes duplicate this today. Don't, don't try necessarily to duplicate something. Let the Spirit of God move in his awesome omnipotence and his newness. But it says, God worked unusual miracles by the hand of Paul. So what is this unusual miracle? It says, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons or, or claws of some type were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, the exorcists, and this is where we're going to stop, but I want you to hear this real quick, and I'm going to stop. So Paul is there, and what they do is they start taking some of the clothing from Paul, or they would have him hold these things or have him on his person while he was ministering or to pray for them, and then they would take these things away and give them to people, and people were healed. Now, people, that may not be magnificent to you, but I'm telling you, that's pretty cool. The fact that the Spirit of God... Now, people say, you know, well, is it that it was Paul? Is it this, that, and the other? I'm going to tell you something, and, and maybe you understand it better than I do, but I'm going to tell you something that I don't understand. I believe and know, that to, know it to be true, but I don't understand it. 
the anointing, as people call it, or in the Old Testament it referred to as the anointing of the Spirit coming upon people. I don't understand how that works because there's one instance that you understand the Spirit of God is upon something, but there is something that is somewhat tangible about that, and I don't understand it. And you say, how do you get that? Well, first of all, from this, this was something that touched his body and they were healed. But if you go back in the Old Testament when the Israelites were traveling and they came upon, oh goodness, y'all help me, Elijah or Elisha, I'm trying to remember. But anyway, the prophet's bones and it says that they had a person that had died and they lowered him down into the tomb of the prophet. And it says that whenever the fellow touched the bones of the prophet, he comes back to life. Explain that one to me. The guy's not even alive. These are bones, dried bones. Jim bones, Jim bones, Jim dried bones. Come on. Now, you know who's saying it? My father. You know this is how I was raised, people. So anyway, them bones, them bones, and dry bones. But why else? People say, well, it was a sign of this. I'm just saying that there is something about the power of God, and I think that this is a safe statement for anybody. I don't understand exactly how it works, but it does. And so this power that rested upon this prophet obviously was still there. So they take these handkerchiefs from Paul, and they're taking them out, and people are being delivered from sicknesses, they're being delivered from demons. Now here's the last thing, and I know I'm running over, just, just bear with me one second. I've got to get through this, it's good stuff. This is what I've been building up to tonight, okay? All right, so really quick. It says, then some of the itinerant Jews, people that were there, we have exorcists, by the way, in all cultures, okay, regardless of whether they are acting under the power of God or by some magic or sorcery uh, of exorcism to cast out spirits, I don't know. But either way, these people were casting out or exercising, removing spirits from people. It says, says, the itinerant, itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call Uh, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, we exercise you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. So people, this is actually a nod. I want you to think about this for a minute. They saw in the ministry of Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus Christ, they saw power they had never seen before. They saw in the name of Jesus, the demons just left. They were cast out. With authority, Jesus spoke. We saw Paul sometimes uh, back in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I command you, come out. Not by my authority, but his authority. He's casting out demons. And if you look at the term exercise, it's compelled. That is, they don't have a choice. It's the idea of grabbing somebody and tossing them. Okay? They're being thrust out. So they come and they decide that they too are going to use the name of Jesus. So they say, and it shows they don't have a personal relationship because we exercise you by Jesus whom Paul's preaching, come out. Okay. Verse 14 said, and also there were these seven sons of a fellow named Sceva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. So we got these seven sons, they decide they're going to cast out demons and they're going to say in the name of Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches, come out. And so they do this and it says the evil spirit, when they do this, so imagine that you've got these seven sons of Sceva, they see somebody who is demon possessed and they say, we command you evil spirit in the name of this Jesus that Paul's been preaching, you get out of it. This is so cool if you go back and study this. It says, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know. But who are you? Let me put it to you in these terms. This is literally in the Greek when you look at the I knows, this is what it's conveying. Jesus, oh, we know him. We know him intimately. We know exactly who Jesus is. Paul, yeah, we know him. We've run into him a time or two. That's the idea that's conveyed. Jesus, oh yes, we know who he is. Paul, yeah, we're familiar with him. We've had run-ins with him. But here's the last part. But I have no idea who you are. Scary, isn't it? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on him, overpowered him, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I want you to see people 
trying to use Jesus Christ and not knowing him. And the power and the beauty in the scripture is not, I'm not trying to get the idea of them being hurt is, is the good part. That's not it. That's human frailty and a sin. But what I want you to get there is in the language of the scriptures is what the demon said. What they're saying is Jesus Christ. Oh, we know him well. The idea is that he's God. We know. You know, that name we'll back away from. Paul, he's a servant of God. We know him. We don't know him in the sense that we know Jesus. We know Jesus with great intimacy. But Paul we know too. But when they look at them... The idea is, but you don't have authority. We don't know who you are. You're not a threat to us. It's very sobering. Very sobering. And they wound up getting beat to death. So, or let to death. I mean, obviously they went away naked, but anyway. With her tail between their legs, okay? So, the idea is this intimacy with Jesus. Kind of like this morning whenever we were preaching, it's not knowing about, it's knowing the individual. It's walking with him, praying, experiencing him, going where he goes. So tonight, let's do this. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I, I know sometimes I just close the service, but I want to be careful. I don't want to always do that. I know I ask you, but there may be somebody that wants to respond today. So tonight, if the Spirit of God is dealing with your heart and you feel like you need special prayer for whatever reason, I want you to know this is your father's altar is yours and i encourage you sincerely from the bottom of my heart to use it to come to your father as he draws your heart so tonight if you need special prayer please respond if jesus speaks to you and also if there's something in your heart that you're dealing with or struggling with with your savior please respond that god may be able to heal you as well so if everyone would please stand and respond as god speaks to you we'll sing us a a verse, and if everything, if we got many people praying, then of course we'll continue on, but we'll close if no one uh, has need at this time. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to There's a lot of people in this building that have never heard my testimony. And I believe the scripture tonight is a lot like my testimony. I went to church for nine months before I was ever born. There's never been a minute in my life that I didn't believe every bit of scripture was true. But I never received Christ until I was 26 years old. I believe that the people in this scripture heard from somebody that had heard John or maybe even had heard John themselves and said, yeah, we need to do better. And they might have been like me in the synagogue every Saturday, whereas I was in the church every Sunday. And they may have tried to clean their life up. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But I believe that the reason 
Paul was able to identify them is there was no spirit that bore witness. He didn't see any power in them. And I can't imagine that that was not a two-way street. I believe they saw power in him. Guys, if you've been coming to church all your life, and you've never come to a place where you just gave up trying to be good, trying to do better, trying to learn more, and just said, I can't do it. And come to a place where you said to God, I can't. I believe you did. If you haven't asked God to apply that to you personally, and since whatever you're counting on is your salvation experience, if you have not felt an overwhelming power of God in your spirit, if you haven't been more able to understand what you read when you open the Bible, if you haven't been able to absolutely love somebody that you don't even know because you see his spirit in them, Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, is what Paul would say. Amen. Very, very well said. Father, Father, we love you because you first loved us. God, forgive us of our sins. Forgive me for my failure as a son, as a Christian, as a pastor, where I fall short. Father, help me and help us all to serve you with all of our hearts, in spirit and in truth. Father, we are your people called by your name. Bless this church as it seeks to glorify you. Please bless it. And may all, all glory be to you now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. You're free. Go with God.